Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Yusuf, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Man, it's been what? It's only been a couple of months, but 60th anniversary is coming up. I wanted to talk to you about some things, but I wanted to ask your opinion because I don't think I've asked you this before. But on, you've researched covert operations. You've looked into the Kennedy stuff. You looked into individual names about how the government was doing some covert operations. What's Can you maybe give me your perspective on the difference between understanding covert operations and then conspiracies as well, too? Because I think a lot of people that would roll their eyes at certain subjects that would be considered conspiratorial is because they don't really know a history of covert operations and how crazy some of them are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a great question, Robbie. And uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to be back on on your uh, podcast and uh, your channel. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a fantastic question. It's such a fascinating and such an important area. And I think people are... You know, led by you know fantastic researchers out there are gradually peeling back the curtain on this you know particularly I think from an American uh, historical point of view the kind of post-war post-World War II era which has been defined in terms of how um, the national security state operates or how uh, the military and other government agencies operate has been defined really by these covert um, operations that were hidden uh, for decades until the 1970s when they when they were exposed basically and that has completely transformed the public's uh, perception of how the government operates how these other kind of shady forces and agencies operate and uh, I, I think you know before the 1970s you had a much more kind of wholesome apple pie americana view of of you know the, the, the public had of their own <laughs> leaders and government and that has fundamentally changed i think perhaps in recent years, you know, to some extent, maybe strategies are much cleverer at trying to conceal what's going on presently. We don't often discover these things till much later. Um, but I think if you look at, you know, particularly a lot of the, the current political movements um, across the world, um, you know, particularly in the US, there is a lot of um, skepticism of the official version. Um, I think it's very hard nowadays you know the moment an event happens it fractures into multiple versions unfortunately that kind of you know postmodernism, where there is no kind of it's very hard to establish an objective truth truth i'm not sure who that actually serves best it probably does serve the interests of the establishment best because there is so much disinformation misinformation so much confusion um that when you look at the events you know for example in this century in the 21st century it's very hard often to get to the bottom of these things, you know, you think of countless things that have that have happened from 9-11 to the Iraq war, to the war on terror, to what's happened in Syria, to, you know, other isolated incidents, you know, uh, and it's it's very difficult to get to the, to the bottom of these things. Um, but, but I think what we do know is obviously the things that have been revealed um, back, you know, during the Cold War, particularly, and as you've mentioned, you look at something like MKUltra, uh, that the CIA was running a mind control program that it was using LSD before it became popularized as a kind of hallucinogenic mind expanding drug. It was using it to see if it could be used as some kind of truth serum, whether it could be used for you know interrogations in order that Soviet agents could perhaps spill the beans um, and that they you know, actually used uh, LSD um, on you know lots of people unknowingly leading to to kind of, you know, large numbers of, of people being, you know, traumatized and um, 
you know, having developing serious mental illness as as a result of these kind of experiments that were uh, carried out. And I think we wouldn't have even known about something like MK Ultra if it wasn't for, uh, I believe it was kind of a, a trove of Richard Helms of material that wasn't um, actually that that was inadvertently not destroyed. Um, so these these things can be covered up. Um, extremely well i think there's there's probably lots of things out there that we don't even know about um you've mentioned mockingbird obviously that was one of the things that came out during these 1970s government investigations after watergate and the end of vietnam and again it showed that, that the cia had media assets that it had strong links with um you know with with the mainstream american media um and that it was able to, to kind of exploit and to use those assets in order to control uh, the narrative on, on all kinds of important kind of domestic and foreign policy issues, essentially. Um, so, you know, these kind of things often get, you know, they sound conspiratorial, of course, you know, if, if you're not, um, if you haven't read about them, uh, if you haven't had the time, and most people don't, as, as you know, most people have a overwhelmed with their normal lives, with their jobs, their career, with their family life. Um, you don't go home and then you know, have time in the evenings or the weekend to research these things. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's even for myself, I was always interested in this kind of area in these subjects from my teenage years. But even I didn't. It was only when I had um, some kind of spare time in my 30s that I was able to um, to really kind of read up and research on it, and I didn't know about you know so many of these subject areas. Things like uh, Gladio. I think Gladio is an excellent example that hardly anyone knows about. That there was you know and that links in with with Northwoods, which I think we'll touch on later. Um, that you had these kind of false flag operations. You know that word you use that word you bandy it around, false flag, and people just think that that you know you're just some eccentric you know nut job or your 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 um you know not not actually talking about anything that's objectively true but we know there were actual uh verifiable uh real operations that docu you know with documents that have been uh, declassified that relate specifically to a false flag operations so yeah it's it's i think probably the most single most arguably the single most fascinating issue of our time is is um trying to to is this growing awareness of the secret state uh, what, what obviously many now call the deep state and uh, this nexus of interests that extends between government uh, intelligence agencies corporations financial institutions um and and how they operate kind of crowded behind a veil of secrecy and the use of i mean if you, if you talk about that word conspiracy theory which has been so weaponized i mean in the mainstream debate uh in the new york times or wherever it might be and in, in our newspapers here in the uk you know that term's bandied around by you know by by you know various political tribes liberals sometimes conservatives um to discredit people the moment you use that label um, that the implication is that that person just believes in ridiculous things like chemtrails or, I don't know, fake moon landings or um, alien abductions or whatever it might be, Pizzagate. Um, but it's it's used to then prevent any serious interrogation of power, essentially. So it's very handy to bandy that label around to basically.
when, when, you, when you label someone a conspiracy theorist, it's like labeling somebody with a mental illness. When I say that, and my example for this is if you label someone an anorexic, they're not no doctor. Nobody's going to listen to you for like a month until they figure out, oh, you're not that at all. You got something else going on. It's like labeling. So if you called someone that person's bipolar, that person's this like call. Like, if you call someone that try to justify that you're not that, you know what I mean? Like try explain. Everyone's not going to listen to you because like, oh, this person's just in denial and it becomes that type of thing. It's the same thing with the conspiracy label. But like from your perspective, have you ever tried to engage with academics and try to tell them things and they would kind of look at you like a conspiracy? Because there is a disconnect between government history and the academic community which i would think the academics would be 100 percent on top of this but even academics who are actually interested in government corruption they don't really go farther back than maybe the 80s like i think a lot of them know about COINTELPRO, but they don't know any of the operation northwoods material they don't know about assassination plots on castro or anything that really is in the extra field or extra realm of crazy um, I hate to use that term for lack of a better word, but it, they are those plots against Castro were just insane, exploding seashells in a skin diving suit. But then Northwoods, when you're reading that is about as nuts as the assassination plots on Castro. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I've, I've got direct experience of that. I, I kind of embarked on a um, well, I did a master's and a Ph.D. and kind of sociology and politics. I, I didn't. Kind of pop complete the PhD at the current time that we're we're talking. I'm considering kind of completing it as a as a PhD by publication. But um, but yeah, I've I've directly encountered that that level of of resistance where um, you know, I, I started out wanting to essentially cover the try and interrogate the concept of the deep state, and you know, you can use different labels that are perhaps more respectable, such as military industrial complex, which. Of course, Eisenhower actually coined that term as military, a man as there is, and, and of course, a former president um, or the secret state. You know, those perhaps those terms are perhaps more uh, respectable to describe establishment. that establishment. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the establishment, I mean, I think for me, the establishment is more of a that's more of a the, the kind of the conventional state. You know, when we think of elected representatives, you know, the, the various arms of the state in the US, I guess it would be the executive um, the, the legislature and the, the judiciary, that would be the establishment, along with perhaps other um, uh, areas as well. But, you know, the secret state, the deep state implies more kind of national security agencies, you know, which are and, and not even the entire agency. It's kind of parts of those agencies that are submerged in and shrouded in secrecy. For example, if you're dealing with the CIA, it's a huge organization. It's got lots of, you know, thousands of employees who just do fairly mundane things a lot of the time, but it's got a clandestine arm. It's got a covert apparatus. That's really what you're probably talking about when you talk about that network of, of kind of shady or darker interests. Um, so, so yeah, I think I did encounter that. Absolutely. I found that academics and my experience also, I've done you know, quite a lot of freelance journalism, again, across media, across um, literary agents, publishing world. It's the same. You've got a, a kind of a whole um, group think and a whole uh, worldview um, amongst those various areas, you know, academics, journalists, um, a lot of you know, professionals, um, again, agents, publishers, where these kind of subjects are considered to be beyond the Overton window, you know, the Overton window being this term that's used to describe the delineation of what's acceptable for mainstream debate. And you have this very vigorous debate that takes place 
within that Overton window, which can shift. But the moment you kind of go beyond the pale <laughs> and you take a subject like, you know, the deep state into the heart of, of academia, you're going to be rebuffed. You're going to meet a lot of resistance. And I, I think, yeah, that's the reason behind that is fascinating. I think part, partly ignorance, but it's partly, I think a lot of it comes down to cognitive dissonance. I think if you are, you know, one of these metropolitan professionals um, and you are doing quite well out of the status quo, and I see this amongst, you know, those those encounters I've had amongst my social circle, amongst other professionals who may be doctors, lawyers, accountants, whatever it might be, um, th what their worldview is colored by is, is, you know, the fact that they've done quite well out of the status quo. So they're also, you know, very highly educated. They are, you know, overqualified. Um, for you to kind of come along and say, hang on, well, you know, there's all this other stuff, MKUltra and Mockingbird and Northwoods and Gladio and so on. You, you're basically kind of dissing them. You're saying, you know, your education at some Ivy League university or Oxbridge or wherever it might be wasn't actually worth a dime because you don't really understand how power works, how the government operates, how the world works. This is actually how it works. And so I think that's where there's a lot of psychic resistance. I think it's also the fact that these subjects are very dark. Um, they expose um, an understanding of the world that is, you know, is, is extremely disturbing, extremely dark. Um, and it therefore means for those people uh, who, who are usually you know, often the, the top 10, 20% of society um, who are doing, you know, very well out of it. You're talking about the kind of middle class, particularly the affluent upper middle classes, and then the ruling class. For you to come along and say these things means, well, this world that I'm, you know, doing well out of is actually a, an extremely dark place. And um, that's not that's not easy to equate those two things together that you keep living with your own life morally whilst being aware of these things that's where the cognitive dissonance kind of creeps in and so it's much easier i think for those people to go with the worldview that of course has been constructed over their entire lifetime by society by propaganda by government by education by everything they see around them which doesn't really talk about these things at all these subjects are you know they're virtually kind of forbidden or um you know, censored. So um, I think it's much easier to then have a, a kind of conventional, credible worldview. Um, and, and I think another part of it is disempowerment. I think if you say, well, the real power lies with these kind of shady forces who are responsible for, you know, perpetual war, or they're responsible for assassinations, regime change, whatever it might be, it's much, I think, um, easier, again, for these, for these kind of, this, this, this very influential segment of society to believe um, that, that that's not the case, that actually it's, you know, elected representatives, it's congressmen, senators, in our case in the UK, you know, members of parliament. Um, it's these people, you know, the prime ministers, the presidents who have the power. That is the, the kind of fairy tale version that we're given. The, 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 the decisions in a democracy are made by these elected representatives um, and the, the laws, you know, they're the lawmakers. And there's a judiciary, which obviously is kind of very much this liberal kind of bourgeois um, fairy tale. And that's that's a much more, again, um, wholesome, uh, acceptable view of how politics and how the world works to most people. Um, and I think if you come along and say, well, actually, there are 
you know these these forces which exist and reside in in the dark in the shade which exert actually we're not saying that the, the conventional forces don't have any power but that there is a lot of power that is exerted that is you know by by secretive shady you know unelected forces um and that these two power centers you know often maybe they may work together but at times there will be kind of conflict there will be tensions between them um so I, I think yeah for all those reasons you, you meet a huge amount of resistance when you try to introduce these kind of subjects into that mainstream arena I ask um there's a it always gets tossed out but rogue elements of the CIA were behind the JFK assassination when we talk about rogue elements are they really rogue elements though because I feel like it's just the CIA has a lot of people. The agencies have a lot of people. And some people are basic employees, like you mentioned before. They're just average employees doing a desk job or something like that. And then you got to go to the more extreme case personalities, the little bit more unstable types that are going to do the things that need to get done and maybe not the prettiest way. Uh, for instance, I think when we get into that talk of CIA rogue elements, people start going, oh, it's just a bunch of bad apples. I can believe that. The agency just had a couple bad apples. I go, yeah, but they're under somebody. They're not just doing this because they randomly get this, hey, I'm going to go against my whole agency and against the law. Because then we have like, was it John McCone? Didn't he lie in his testimony in court? And then they said in the CIA rule book or something like that, that he's allowed to lie in court. It wasn't an actual illegal thing for him to do that. Even though everyone assumes that you don't lie in court once you put your hand on that Bible, you don't do that. But again, when you try and verify and the only way you can get people like academics in on the discussion is if the government shows you that, yes, this did happen. This was a lie and this was bad. And then I point back to uh, Hale Boggs's comment where he's like, you're asking the FBI to investigate the FBI. I mean. The only reason Dag Hammarskjöld's death is accepted as someone might have gotten rid of him is because the UN did an investigation on it. And there was like five or six different investigations in on Dag Hammarskjöld's plane crash. And then we got, what is it, uh, Truman? Yeah, Truman makes a statement. He goes, they killed him. Notice how I said they killed him. No press people followed up on that, but it's because of those government officials, the people that we might suspect of doing a heinous act, end up having to investigate it to get people on board to the discussion. Oh, well, that's just proven because the government was corrupt at that time. Okay, where that's again, a lot of the stuff that gets labeled conspiracy and the academics won't get on board. They're looking for that document, the government saying, yes, this happened. I'm like, you're not going to get that, especially with some of these individuals. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, you get all these versions, all these limited hangouts. And so uh, when it comes to, you know, the the obviously the case with, with Hammerschult um, and, and Lumumba in the Congo right at the height of the Cold War, um, I mean, you know, there's been some fantastic research in recent years on that, of course. There's, there's been, I think, new, as you say, UN investigations. There's also been, you know, some great... Um, work out there from Susan Williams, who's a kind of a British academic and also a great documentary for those who are not, you know, big readers, which is called Cold, Cold, Cold Case Hammershot. I don't know if you've seen that, Robbie, um, but that came out and, and I think won some some prizes in the kind of film festival circuit a few years ago. So, that, you know, the, these these things and, and even in, in Oliver Stone's, um, you know, recent um, four part JFK assassination documentary that came out last year. Um, I mean, there are documents that have been 
uncovered, um, which which actually come from I think it's a, some kind of South African organization, the Maritime uh, Agency or something like that, some kind of cover name. I can't remember the details now. In which they explicitly talk about the fact that that you know the these assassinations uh, you know have been given authorization by Alan Dulles and so on. But of course, these documents, the moment even something like that comes out, it's then discredited. It's described as being a fake or it's uh, some kind of Soviet disinformation job. And you kind of think, well, these were were found. These documents were found. I think during the South African kind of reconciliation uh, commissions during the 1990s. So, you know, why would, you know, why would something that is meant to be a Soviet disinformation job come out, you know, 30 plus years after the event? It doesn't really add up. So e even when these things are exposed, they're then, they're not covered by uh, the mainstream or they're ignored or they're just discredited. Um, and I think it comes back to Mockingbird, doesn't it? When you've got um, what we know from uh, the Cold War era certainly is that Alan Dulles and the kind of CIA hierarchy um, had you know, very strong links with the publishers, you know, the, the Salzburgers and so on, the publishers of the New York Times, the publish publishers of the Washington Post, um, the, the various, you know, broadcast media uh, outlets. These are all kind of transnational corporations on the whole that are part of, of, of media empires. They're owned by billionaires um, and you know they're all talking together and they have very strong links with uh, the national security uh, hierarchy and everyone's you know scratching everyone else's backs they all have common interests amongst this you know as you've called it the establishment amongst this ruling class so um yeah i mean you know backpedaling obviously to the kennedy assassination 60th anniversary coming you know that's the latest limited hangout is it was which is being peddled by um, even some insiders that uh, there were, yeah, a rogue, rogue you know, the, the, the version now with that I guess came out of the 70s investigations that it might have been the mob on its own, you know, getting revenge against the Kennedys. That's kind of warm thin after the original Warren Commission version with the lone nut of. of well, like Harvey. I said, even with the mob, wouldn't the government just go after the mob if they got there, if the mob killed the president? Like, that's not an act that they're just going to be like, OK, well, I guess it didn't happen, you know, that just kind of like move on to the next thing yeah yeah absolutely i mean it doesn't really add up the the, the mob as uh, again in oliver stone's fantastic movie jfk as he says you know the mob doesn't have the balls or the or the uh, the know-how to pull something of this magnitude off um i mean again it comes back to this the, the rogue apples that's the latest limited hangout well these people, David Morales, David Ashley Phillips, Howard Hunt, Bill Harvey, they were all character assassinated by the agency's PR machinery in their final years and after their deaths. Um, and you know, those are supposedly some of the rogue apples who might have pulled this off. But you know, that's that is a convincing version. It's quite possible that you can construct a version where someone like David Ashley Phillips himself was was possibly framed by by some of his colleagues. Of course, these. These things can all be put out there. But when you really take a step back, you look at some of the other ways that this has played out. Um, I mean, the, the series of um, very suspicious murders, for example, that happened each time there was a major investigation into the Kennedy assassination, both uh, in the 60s, later in the mid to late 70s. And, you know, you look at, at David Morales may have died in suspicious circumstances, others such as Obviously, Johnny Roselli, Sam Giancana were murdered 
um, quite brutally. Um, so kind of very, very important mafiosi, um, you know, someone like George de, 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 de Morinshield, who was Oswald Spengali, you know, supposedly committed suicide, but under, again, quite suspicious circumstances. I mean, if this was just a group of rogue apples, um, you know, who was doing all this? Who was, who was still decades later uh, going around kind of bumping people off? And when you look at the list of kind of tens, if not hundreds of witnesses or uh, insiders directly or indirectly involved with the assassination, you've kind of got to go, you know, this is something far bigger. That's that's one argument that I think you struggle with. I, I think you also look at the likes of David Morales. I mean, yes, some of these people were senior officers, but the idea that these people, such as David Morales, who spend their entire careers taking orders in Guatemala, in Cuban operations, in Vietnam, in Chile, that they would suddenly decide to pull off basically the crime of the century without any kind of authorization in order to basically, you know, and uh, buy and and to cover it up through effectively blackmailing their you know their bosses and uh, the, the government agencies they work for. It's it's a stretch, really. I think it's it's much more plausible that there was um, authorization, as David Talbot has argued, from the likes of Alan Dulles and others. You know, right at the apex points of the secret state, the deep state, and the establishment. Um, I think there was a growing consensus amongst these interests, whether it was big oil or whether it was finances in, in Wall Street, um, or Alan, you know, basically Alan Dulles and his circle of, of you know, defense contractors, military industrial players, oil, oil men, all of these kind of people. There was a there was, you know, consensus that JFK, you know, had to go at the heart, at the height of the Cold War. That if he was allowed to continue, if he was re-elected and if his brother became president, that the outcome for these people of the Cold War might be some kind of coexistence with Soviet communism. And what these people wanted was, 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 you know, total defeat of communism. They were kind of Cold War hawks. They were arch, you know, cold warriors and anti-communists. You know, for them and, and the people beneath them, such as David Morales, such as um, Ted Shackley, David Phillips, you know, they, they were kind of, you know, hardliners. Um, and this kind of, you know, JFK and his brother started out as Cold Warriors to some extent, and it was that kind of gradual shift evolution in their thinking during his presidency, which I think sealed his fate, really, starting out from, from hesitance over the Bay of Pigs to hesitation over the Cuban Missile Crisis to refusing to, you know, invade Cuba, refusing to fully commit in Vietnam. All of these things, I think, sealed their fate. And I don't think that JFK was necessarily some kind of radical. Um, I think he took his responsibilities as commander-in-chief very seriously. He took, I think, the Cold War quite seriously. Um, but um, he, he wasn't considered to be um, hardliner and ruthless enough. And these people, when you look at you know, Ted Shackley's comment, he said it was a strange time. You know, there was assassination was just... Kind of par for the course. I can't remember the exact quote, but, but basically, you know, they were they had the mechanisms to do this. That they were in place. They were being directed against Castro. They were being directed against Lumumba, against um, the DM brothers in Vietnam, against Trujillo in Dominican Republic. There was, you know, an assassination program, ZR rifle, led by, you know, Bill Harvey, 
Um, and and there, there was the mechanism to, to, to do these things as documented very clearly in government investigations. But that to then be turned inwards, directed domestically, again, you know, in a presidential assassination, therefore is not a massive leap or, you know, in, in your thinking to, to see how something like that could happen. Um, do you know the, I think, do you know you know, the mob look, term made man? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Do you think Familiar. that um, David Atlee Phillips, Howard Hunt, these were kind of like made men in a way? I mean, I don't know where your conspiracy line is. When I start looking into some of these individuals, they have the weirdest connections I have ever seen. Like Harold Byrd, the guy who owned the Texas School Book Depository, who went a month before the assassination, went to Africa to go hunt lions or something like that. He was friends with Howard Hunt. He was friends with Lyndon Johnson. He was friends with a lot of these characters. And Howard Hunt's name pops up everywhere. Now, I know his son recorded that deathbed confession and everything like that, which I think is interesting. But I start going, a lot of these people are tied together through whether they met at a party. And it goes back to what you're saying, Alan Dulles in the media. Look, a portion of that could be everyone's thinking they're doing their patriotic duty and they're doing this by helping out the government in a sense. But also Alan Dulles did have parties with media officials and individuals from Time Life and all these other magazine corporations and they would hang out. So eventually they became super friendly and eventually you scratch my back, I scratch your back. So then we get into names like David Atlee Phillips um and others and you start kind of going i mean these were kind of made men i mean bill harvey could show up to the white house with a gun around his waist and not be yelled at not scolded by it seemed like he was kind of going by his own rules now that makes him seem like a rogue individual but also everyone's kind of letting it happen so he has to have some deep connections for that to even be a possibility yeah yeah absolutely robbie i mean yeah, I think these people were, you know, particularly the likes of Alan Dulles, extremely well connected. They were basically, you know, they 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 were, um, you know, belonged to to the to the elite, you know, wasp world. Um, wasp. Yeah, I mean, they they were they were, you know, been educated uh, at the best, you know, schools, and then gone to Harvard or other Ivy League universities. They're members of, you know, the most exclusive clubs and societies in New York and Washington. Um, so there's this kind of, as C. Wright Mills, the, the uh, famous American sociologist, um, uh, you know, described in, in his, his uh, work, The Power Elite, you know, you have this network of um, government, corporate, financial, military elites. They've gone to the same, they basically come from aristocratic or ruling class backgrounds. They've gone to the same schools, the same universities. They've been in you know, kind of secret societies in these institutions. They then joined these members, you know, exclusive members, kind of metropolitan clubs. So yeah, they 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 they're all interconnected through this kind of recruiting ground, and then they're you know appointed to the positions at the apex kind of positions of the apex positions of power in American society. They all share the same um, worldview, the same interests. You know, these are people powerful wealthy people who own the country they own the planet um some of them you've heard of many of them you haven't the kind of families the dynasties the likes of the duponts etc who own the chemical industries who own oil you know in texas who own the banks and other financial institutions who own the kind of military contractors you mentioned dh bird yeah i mean absolutely he owned the um the, the depository didn't he, if i'm not mistaken i get confused between all these uh, different kind of um Texas uh, millionaires and and so on. Um, uh, obviously, you've got Ted Dealey as well. 
Um, and I think Bird famously, he took the, the sixth floor freight window frame that Oswald supposedly fired from and hung it up as a trophy in his own mansion. Um, and he then, I think, was awarded one of the most profitable contracts for the Vietnam War, I believe, as well. Making jet fighters. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, these people, they're, they're, they have the shared worldview, the shared interests. And it was, you know, and they, they thought the Kennedys were probably... Um, of the same ilk. That was the expectation when, uh, you know, JFK came from one of the the wealthiest uh, families. Admittedly, they were not. They were they were perhaps outsiders as Irish Catholics. You know, knew money to some extent through obviously the paterfamilias, Joseph Kennedy. But they were nevertheless, you know, insiders. And the expectation was that, you know, based on JFK's. Um, uh, position and in, in, in you know as a senator in the 1950s the expectation was that you know when he came when he became president you know he was he was perhaps and you know in some ways there was there was well i think the, the the expectation from alan dulles and his coterie was that you know he was he may have been young and experienced there may be kind of a bit of anxiety about what this new generation might represent but you know you you, you look at most of his early speeches and so on, including the inauguration. And the expect, you know, it's clear that JFK looks like a cold warrior. Of course, the problems start with the Bay of Pigs, where it becomes clear that he isn't necessarily going to be pushed around, that he's he's actually got the strength of personality and character to to not do that. Um and and I think that perhaps comes from his wealth, his independence. He's not just the kind of a, a typical politician who is you know, pay to what we call nowadays pay to play. You know, he doesn't need to buy his way into the establishment. He's he's uh, perhaps you know he's someone who's who's very um, uh, um, you know wealthy in his own right. So um, yeah, he's seen. I think eventually he's seen by the by the others in the in the ruling class, these other influential figures, as a class traitor, um, a bit like FDR, like Roosevelt. And you know what happened to Roosevelt, of course, was a, was another secretive plot uh, in the 1930s to try and and um, get rid of him, to overthrow him, and replace him with a kind of almost a fascist regime, really. Um, so, so you know, these plots have happened before, um, and I think with everything we now know, it's very hard to to to, to think to buy into some kind of lone nut kind of fairy tale. <laughs> Can I ask what your perspective is on maybe the mindset of Bill Harvey, uh, David Atlee Phillips, and Howard Hunt? Like, where, do you think that it was kind of like? Because when I spoke to Stephen Kinzer about Sidney Gottlieb, he oh, gave I'll me just a... sorry, should we? Should we yeah. just? I'll just. There's a bit of background noise. I'll just. Hold on. I wanted to ask what your perspective was on Howard Hunt and David Atlee Phillips and characters like Bill Harvey, just their mindset. Because when I spoke to Stephen Kinzer about his book on Sidney Gottlieb, the MK Ultra Doctor, he gave me a new perspective I probably would have never thought of unless I kind of spoke to someone who actually looked into this guy's journal and life. And he was like, he wasn't thinking about it like how you would normally think about just experimenting on people. It wasn't out of sick vengeance. It was this person that was doing a job and he also was interested in not only supporting the country and understanding new methods of mind control and things of this sort, but it was like, can you get his name in a history book type deal as well, too? You know, it wasn't like I'm a sick freak. I want to experiment on people. So I'm curious when it comes to like David Atlee Phillips, Morales and all these characters, were they thinking about it like they're doing their patriotic duty in your perspective from what you've understood about them? Or do you think it was more like they're the, the frat boy environment like we were just talking about earlier? 
Yeah, another great question. I mean, um, yeah, I think I think these, yeah, the, the oh, when you think obviously about the magnitude of some of this stuff, you kind of go, wow, you know, it's it's it when you when you think about the mainstream conventional worldview that is that you are surrounded by, the wallpaper of our lives, the the way things are presented to us that are often very different from the underlying secretive reality that we eventually you know start to understand years or decades later um you look at the kennedy assassination you go i mean i, I this kind of thing that keeps you up at night you go how at the risk of sounding like someone who is obsessive to, to the point of it being unhealthy i mean it keeps you up because you kind of think how did they pull this off i mean to to murder the you know the most uh you know support you know at least nominally the most important elected uh, representative in the world, really the most powerful person in the world, and to get away with it, you know, scotch-free. I mean, it's it's astonishing, you know, and, and then you have the likes of, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's remarkable, but I think, um, yeah, I think humans, you know, the more, the more you understand these areas, the more you realise psychology and politics are are, are are intertwined and um, not just in terms of propaganda and kind of social control but in terms of, of of how good the human mind is at self-justification and I think um it's quite easy to commit acts that I guess this is what Hannah Arendt I think termed the banality of evil I think it's quite easy to commit uh, acts that are very unethical immoral um if you're operating, as you say, within this kind of bureaucracy, within this apparatus, where, as far as you're concerned, what you're doing is really, you know, these people, I think, yeah, they genuinely, they vehemently believed that um, they were doing what was in the national interest. Of course, that term, national interest or national security, is is problematic. We can, you know, spend a whole amount of time trying to unpack it. Uh, of course, what is really in the national interest means, of course, the interests of that ruling class that we've spent a lot of time talking about today. But um, that's what they believed. They believed that they were doing what was best for the United States, that the Kennedys were weak. Um, you know, these arch conservatives, the likes of, you know, particularly these Texan oil millionaires, or, you know, people like the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Curtis LeMay, Lyman Lemnitzer, the joint, who was the Joint Chiefs, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. I mean, these people saw the, 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 the kind of shift of the Kennedys towards uh, accommodation with, the, with Castro, with the Soviets. They saw them as weak, um, uh, you know, weak-minded, and um, that the, they, they were going to, you know, risk, the the hegemony of the United States, and of course, when you look at how things panned out with the end of the you know, the, defeat, the collapse of communism, the end of the the Cold War, you know their calculation, their gamble paid off, didn't it? They did achieve that object objective. And um, I think you know when you look at a lot of these assassinations, you, you there is almost an element. There's a strange element as well of not so much asking for it, but kind of things that you know. Could have been avoidable, you know, if JFK had, you know, stood, you know, I think their, their father didn't want him. He didn't want him to stand in 1960. He didn't think JFK would win against Nixon. Um, but the Kennedy brothers were, you know, insistent. And of course, they did win in the end with, with a lot of money and a lot of help. But, um, you know, if he'd stood in 64 or perhaps 68, you know, I think things would have panned out very differently from 
that atmosphere right at the, you know, think of everything that was going on as Ted Shackley said, it was a strange time. You know, assassination was just in the air. Uh, when you look at what would happen to Hammerschult, you know, Lumumba, most likely these other leaders, you know, I think you jump to about, you know, within the space of about 10 years, it was a very different kind of shift. You know, I think those kind of things wouldn't have happened. Um, so I think when you talk about kind of asking for it, you know, if if you I think Dean Rusk, Kennedy's Secretary of State, if, if I recall correctly, he put it very well, describing Cuban operations among us. He said the Kennedys were playing with fire. You don't, you know, you don't authorize something of this size and scope and immorality, a massive, basically, uh, program on domestic soil of contraband, of gun running, of assassinations. Um, and then, you know, be that surprised if it's, you know, turned against you, basically, when you then start to to perhaps flip-flop or you start to change your mind i'm not you know i'm not trying to 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 to, to you know agree with these people who were you know frankly traitors who were um who, who were very immoral and unethical in many ways but i think you have to be capable you know i'm writing a book about this period about these kind of operations you know focusing on this clique including david atley phillips and you have to try and get into their mindset. You have to see how they saw things. And I think that's how they saw it. You look at how, you know, someone like, um, uh, sorry, I've forgotten his name now. I'll have to look it up. Um, it was, it was um, I think, Richard Helms' um, assistant, and he is kind of a very uh, outspoken character. But if, if you look at some of the comments from these people, they just thought that the way that the Kennedys were you know, for example, you know, meddling in these covert operations, you know, Bill Harvey got really incensed about it. You know, he said, you know, Robert Kennedy started, you know, the, the, he, Robert Kennedy fell in love with covert ops, started wanting to basically micromanage and to run these operations and was saying, you know, oh, I can get some of these, you know, some of my favorite, you know, liberal Cuban assets um, and, and, you know, train them up myself at, at home. And, you know, Bill Harvey was like, what in babysitting? You know, so, um, you know, it's it's it. These people found um, found it, it, it irksome, irritating. Um, uh, they found that their turf was being stepped upon, and then they they saw the Kennedys as essentially frappers. They saw them as these kind of spoiled, um, inexperienced, young, um, you know, rich daddy's boys, essentially, um, and they were kind of having to, to kind of take orders from them. Um, and as far as they were concerned, they were dealing with a very, the very serious business of the US empire, essentially with, you know, all these Cold War fronts and theaters in Berlin and Vietnam and Cuba. And the Kennedys, as far as they were concerned, were just, you know, messing all of this up basically. And so they have to go, you know, it's that simple. It's about to us in the kind of normal suburban world we, we inhabit, it's crazy. But to them, you know, right at the pinnacle of power, this is just business. It's it's not personal. This is how it has to be done. And, um, you know, I'm always reminded of, of you know, the story of, of the medieval story of Henry, I think it was Henry, King Henry II in, in England, ordering the, you know, ordering the, the murder of, of uh, his troublesome uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. You know, and what did, what did Henry II say? He said, Will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? So this was a thousand years earlier. This 
you know, medieval version of um, plausible deniability. You know, those were the words used. His, you know, four, I believe, of his most um, uh, senior noblemen and knights, you know, rode off and murdered the archbishop. And that led to a massive backlash uh, across uh, England because Thomas Becket was a, a man of the people. He was, he was very popular and Henry II had to kind of go on a kind of pilgrimage and seek atonement and had to wear kind of a, a vest of thorns or whatever it was. What time but, you know, period think, was King Henry II? This, I mean, this was, gosh, I mean, yeah, don't quote me. I mean, this was, I think, the oh, off the top of my head, this was the 1100s or, or thereabouts. So it's either the 4th or the 6th. One of the kings down there banned people from, uh, they banned coffee houses because of the fact that they realized the king was getting so paranoid, he realized that people were going into this area and like they were congregating and they were discussing politics. And he believed this was like the early start of like kind of conspiracy talk, which is descent from the official opinion of royalty or class. And so he would ban people from gathering at certain locations because of the fact that maybe it was a mix of the caffeine as well, too. But I don't remember which king that was. But to me, that was just interesting. So this is like a long lingering historical thing. This isn't like the conspiracy and all the descent from the official. I mean, public trust in the government back then, for especially over here in the U.S. during the Cold War was a lot of people trusted their government, but I think the Vietnam War shook, shook them from that. And I think where we're at now, it's not like it's any really different. There's always been dissent amongst individuals, but now the information is right in your face. I mean, now you can literally look up if someone says something on your phone and try and find out what that is. You might come across a whole swath of information, but actually this is a really important question, but how much of the Cold War or learning about Cold War operation enhance your perspective on the Kennedy assassination. Did you find that it was actually giving you more information to understand that, okay, this is 100% plausible or the government could do something of this magnitude? Because if you just say government killed JFK, if you have no Cold War context, you can still get there, but it's a little bit shakier ground. But I feel like it solidifies more for you if you understand more about the Cold War. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the terminology is important. I think... Um... I don't think, you know, the government, you know, I wouldn't use that term. I wouldn't say the government was behind it. I think there were influential figures, you know, most, you know, certainly we, we know about very likely some of the mid-level operatives, the likes of Howard Hunt, um, David Morales, you know, quite possibly Bill Harvey. I think these people were involved in the um, you know carrying out of of this of the actual assassination the operation in terms of plan you know the actual not the not talking about the foot soldiers who did the shooting job we're talking about the, the middle level operatives who probably did a lot of the kind of covert um, planning for it um, perhaps you know both before and after in terms of of psyops disinformation and so on. Um, I, I think the people who authorized this, that's the real question, isn't it? Who did it? David Talbot, I think, very persuasively argues that Alan Dulles was the author of the plot. And I think, you know, you mentioned the Howard Hunt confession. I think, yeah, that's very interesting that Howard Hunt tries to lay the blame at the door of LBJ. I, I don't buy that. I don't think Lyndon Johnson, despite all his, you know, notoriety with Mac Wallace and all of this stuff and the murders that have been put at, at Johnson's or I, I don't think Johnson is the mastermind, the father or the author of this. Plot. I've gotten I, I don't... there. I've gotten there a little bit more from talking to more of the I've 
the LBJ side of things. I've kind of touched on all angles, but the point always gets brought to who had the most to gain. And I'm like, well, take your pick. Everyone got something after this assassination, whether it was Harold Byrd getting $50 million after the Kennedy assassination. He owned one of the most popular buildings in the world and has this amazing defense contract uh, agreement. LBJ, all the scandals drop and he gets to be president. Um, everyone gains something. The mob gains stuff as well, too. Uh, Robert Kennedy backed off of him a little bit. So it was like I, you could take your pick on that one. But I don't know. I think understanding more about the Cold War will really solidify that it's not just one thing. It's multifactorial. But I do say if we talk about rogue elements – if they're a part of that agency, it has to go through an agency, a higher up at some point. I don't know if it's Alan Dulles or not. I would probably point more towards Alan Dulles. But as an agency, you got to take the hit on that one, credibility wise. CIA, that's those are your people, whether they're rogue operatives or not. That's a that's that's a representation of you. I think the church committee exposed a lot, but I still think even that was a whitewash. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think I think when you look at Gates and Fonzie's account of how these investigations played out, and I think Blakey's later realizations of how hamstrung the House investigation was, yeah, absolutely. These were these 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 investigations could at that critical moment, perhaps that was the last, as as Fonzie termed his, it called his book, the last investigation, that was possibly the last chance to really get to the bottom of it. Um there was a kind of a mood in the country. There was a, a critical, um, you know, m- moment where you know things could have could have really been discovered. I think mean, now, sixty years later, it's it's very hard to get to the bottom of this. Um, I think most evidence, most documents have been destroyed. It's very interesting what is what is still being hidden. <laughs> I guess maybe you know we know there are hundreds of documents and pages pertaining to these very nefarious characters, such as Phillips Hunt. Um, Bill Harvey, etc. I mean, are there, you know, something, for example, you think of in the documents, you know, I think there there are about 125 pages or something referring to Phillips's, um, you know, pseudonyms and, and, uh, and, and aliases. So is, is, you know, is there something in those documents referring to, to him as Morris Bishop, for example? You know, that would be dynamite. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bill Harvey, I think there is so much there already uh, on, on Bill Harvey um, you know, his his own handwritten notes on how to run an assassination, which mirror um, the, the JFK plot, you know, everything that Harvey's written on how to run an assassination from, you know, using disinformation to blame it on the um, Soviets and the Czechs. He says, this is how you run an assassination. You, you create a fake uh, 201 file. Um, you compartmentalize, you run that 201 file through Angleton's, um, you know, counterintelligence division. Um, you use Corsicans, you know, all of these things have, uh, over the years, uh, it's become apparent, you know, are, are part of the JFK plot, most likely. So um, I, I think, you know, and there, there were people very close to Harvey, his deputy, Mark Wyatt, um, according to his account in the Rome station after Bobby Kennedy fired Harvey, he was moved by Richard Helms to to be the CIA station chief in Rome. Um, You know, Mark Wyatt um, said that Harvey's behavior on the day of assassination was very suspicious, that he he said, you know, these, 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 again, this all boils down, unfortunately, to hearsay, doesn't it? But apparently Harvey said things like, well, this is the day when the president is going to to, to, to get him, you know, going to, to get himself killed, basically. And when it did happen, he reportedly, you know, again, according to Mark Wyatt, his deputy 
<laughs> station chief, he said, um, well, this was um, always going to happen and it's probably a good thing that it did. So it clearly indicates that Harvey had you know, some kind of foreknowledge of the plot. I think his connections with um, Johnny Roselli, with, you know, mafiosi to the disapproval of others, um, some of the stuff he was, you know, doing when you look at his kind of the, the, the receipts and the accounts where he was hanging out with Roselli and um, with others in, you know, down in Florida in the, in the kind of months before the assassination, um, you know, and, and it's, it's all very suspicious. Um, I think Harvey was very close to Angleton. Um, again, Angleton, was he or wasn't he involved or was Angleton framed um, alongside Phillips? Very hard to answer that one. But when you look at the extent to which Angleton went to cover things up after the fact, again, very suspicious to think that you would go to such lengths over many years, you know, many instances of Angleton threatening people, blackmailing them, um, you know, traveling himself to various places such as, you know, to, to Mary Pincho Meyer's house after her murder or to Angle, uh, so, sorry, to um, uh, Wynne Scott, the, the CIA Mexico chief's house after his death. So he's, he's continuing to kind of vacuum up all this, all these confidential and classified documents, years and decades threatening other people who, who were on the Warren Commission when they spoke out years later during the 1970s. So he was, he was constantly engaged in this, in, in, in covering all of this up. And it's very hard to, again, accept that Angleton was merely doing this to protect the reputation of the agency. I think he had, must have had some kind of direct investiture in the operation. But I mean, again, I don't think Angleton was, you know, despite his power, I don't think he was the author of the plot. I don't think any of these people would dare to do this without higher authorization. And I think what's interesting is that, according to Howard Hunt's account, you know, he was on the periphery of this. He was a bench warmer. He describes how he was approached by, I think, Bill Harvey and Morales. Um, and and that he basically said, oh, no, I think it was Morales who approached him. And there was a meeting in a, in a, again in a, in a hotel. And um, Morales indicated that Harvey was involved in the, in this kind of the, the planning for the JFK assassination. And Hunt basically said, well, he didn't want to have anything to do with that kind of psychotic alcoholic Harvey. Um, and and Morales apparently, according to Hunt, indicated that there was authorization for this from above. So I think that's very telling. Um, I think Hunt's confession, however, is very problematic. If you read his account of it in his autobiography. If you read the account of it in the, you know, if you watch the video, obviously recorded by his son, if you uh, read the Rolling Stone article documenting all of this, uh, I think particularly in his autobiography, there are so many contradictions and conflicting um, aspects to the Howard Hunt confession that it's as if it's um, as if he didn't even bother to reread what he'd written or to edit it. Um, so he's almost presents it not it's not it's not first of all it's not a deathbed confession he lived on for a few years after that and it's not really a confession it's almost as if he's saying well this is kind of my educated guess this is my stab at, based on obviously my proximity to all of this at what happened um, so I think I think Hunt's being disingenuous I think he's more involved uh, than he lets on but he doesn't want to incriminate himself um, and I think from what he says um, you know, he doesn't really know everything, but I think he clearly knows enough from what he's been told 
that, um, that there was authorization from above. But in, as David Talbot argued, I think to that even to that day in the 21st century when he made this confession, you know, he he was still protecting uh, the man that they all um, admired and idolized and worshipped, who was Alan Dulles. And I think he can't even bring himself to to say that Dulles was, you know, likely the author and the architect of all of this. Um, but it, it all comes back to, again to that Thomas A. Beckett story. You know, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? No one really needs, you know, in this kind of of, of high level uh, power politics and conspiracy. Uh, there's no, no one needs to say that you know, JFK has to be killed. It's just there's a there's a consensus in the power structure. You know, amongst there's a lot of perhaps discussion behind the scenes that that this is no longer a satisfactory situation for the power elite. And that he has to go. But those people right at the top, the likes of Alan Dulles, et cetera, they, they have, you know, they're, they're protected through this shield of plausible deniability. They don't need to sign anything. They don't need to put their name to anything. These operations are carried out in a very clever, concealed way. And they have deferred to their, um, to, to, to these mid-level operatives, the likes of, you know, these senior officers such as Harvey uh, Bill Harvey and and David Morales and so on to carry this out. Um, so so I think that's how these things work. To be honest, do you think that Howard Hunt's wife's death suspicious at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I, I don't know enough about that to be honest, Ruby. Um, I think clearly it's yeah one of these things. You know, his son believes it is. Um, uh, how, how did the government not consider any of these people a security risk, even if they're loyalists to the establishment or the agencies? I would have to think at some point that like at some point he's going to write something down. He's going to say something. I believe a lot has been said over the years that has just been disinformation or just messing around with things like. But there are some things like Nixon talking about. We don't want to repeat the whole Bay of Pigs fiasco. You know, certain situations like that, I'm like, I don't know. I don't sense BS in that, but I, I know that they obviously know more than what they lead on. And I think it's those types of statements, like even statements you get from Truman about Dag Hammarskjöld, like they killed him. Notice how I said they killed him. Like he knows something about how the politics work. And that's the important part. Doesn't necessarily mean they know the whole end goal of the conspiracy. They're in on the conspiracy, but they understand how these agencies and how the actual inner political workings go together i'm sure eisenhower knew plenty about it but you know he's one of those loyalist types that kept his mouth shut to a good sense yeah yeah i mean truman obviously after the assassination he he wrote that op-ed in the washington post in december of 63 where he said the cia is basically um you know it's it's um this is not what i envisaged when i when i legislated for the creation of the agency um it should return to its role as an intelligence and information gathering apparatus, not a kind of shady covert action um, apparatus, which which is going around carrying out assassinations and regime change. Um, you know that is not what I had in mind. But of course, this this kind of um, get out of jail card was used in the legislation, giving you know the the, the CIA carte blanche to carry out all these things that come under the heading of covert action. Um, so I think, you know, and he wrote that in December of 63, like less than a month after JFK had been assassinated. You know, the timing of that cannot be uh, ignored. He obviously suspected the, the stench of something. Um, and and um, that necessitated a visit from Dulles himself. Alan Dulles attempted to, to get um, 
Truman to retract this article. He failed. Um, and, and then he made up that he did, that Truman, he kind of, for the purposes of posterity and the archives, he tried to pretend that Truman had, had retracted this and that he'd been a bit confused or that the newspaper had somehow, um, you know, edited it differently. So, um, yeah, I mean, you have also a month before uh, the assassination, you have a very important article in the New York Times written by a Kennedy confidant, um, I think it was Arthur Croft off the top of my head, writing about um, how a high-level government source, uh, and I think he's actually referring to JFK because he was a close family friend, but anyway, we, we can only cast, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, can just guess who the identity of this source is. But he basically says a high-level source basically stated that the CIA was, you know, was a malignancy, that it's out of control, that if ever there was a, uh, a coup d'etat in this country, it would have been carried out not by the Pentagon, but by the, the CIA. Um, and that's written in October 63, a month before JFK is assassinated um, in the New York Times. Um, so these kind of things are very telling. But um, yeah, I mean, sorry, I forgot your question. I've gone off as usual on a, on a kind of... Yeah. You're good. No, I think you answered it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You. I mean, you. You were. I think. Um, yeah. You were asking, obviously, about. Um, yeah. I think people like Truman, Eisenhower, Johnson, Nixon. I think these people, obviously, they're in very powerful positions as as presidents, and they have access to information. You know, real life, real time, uh, classified information that that mere you know us mere mortals don't have access to. But I think they still, you know, are being. Um, there are you know, forces in terms of that nexus, that network of um, military, industrial, corporate, financial entities that, you know, that make up um, the ruling class, that make up the um, the, the, the power structure of the, of the United States, that there are even more powerful forces. And that's not kind of conspiracy talk that's it sounds conspiracy but yeah it's it's how the world works and it's really simple the narrative has changed so much from the official story from what it was and as much as it's changed in 60 years that you think people would hop on board one thing that you can point out that's not a conspiratorial subject but it shows a corrupted individual involved in an institution is the fact that j edgar hoover would keep classified memos and documents and letters and blackmail information in his private desk in his office and that was not revealed until later after he died so there's secret memos government stuff that should not be in his desk that should be in the archives that should be released that should have been memos that we should have access to and it wasn't released until way later so that would get a more people off the conspiracy boat and into like okay that makes a lot more sense but also he created the whole declassification classification and sanitization system in the first place so that that whole labeling of names needing to be redacted it's not just that though it goes deeper i mean the fact that in my opinion i'll ask you this but i don't think a lot of these people would be signing up for some of these projects if they knew their name was going to be not redacted out of a document. I think that starts getting people convinced to be a part of it if they know their name's not going to be attached to it, at least in their lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, I think this goes back to the morals, the ethics of it. I, I think what's fascinating is when you look at all of this stuff is for a bunch of spies, um, you know, they're not very secretive. <laughs> I mean, um, 
you know, when you look at how much has, has come out, of course, there's a lot we don't know, and, the, and particularly in the present, of course, that that's where we really are fumbling around in the dark. But if you look at the, the past events, I mean, who could have possibly dreamt, whether it's in terms of the JFK assassination, that we have four to five million pages of documents, no one, you know, at the start of this or in the early years could have possibly envisaged that we would have that amount of information. And it's cast, uh, it's shed, sorry, a lot of light, of course, on um, other operations on Northwoods, on, um, uh, you know, on um, Mongoose, etc. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, really um, in terms of, of, of uh, going back to the kind of individual personnel, I, I, I think um, that it's very interesting that when these people come to the final chapter of their lives, that they really... They, they, a lot of them wrote kind of autobiographies um, or they, they confessed to things, um, you know, particularly in the JFK story. You've got Howard Hunt. You've got, um, you know, the, the, the memoirs that David Phillips wrote that were, you know, they were actually opposed by, by, by the agency um, at the time. Um, you've got um, the things that David Morales said to his, you know, friends and associates. Um, you've, you've got... Um, all of these kind of, 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 you know, all kinds of other examples of these confessions and um, spies, you know, senior spies, Ted Shackley, many others writing their own memoirs. And, and you kind of wonder what, why they do that. You know, Antonio Vassiano, another example of a guy who decided to, to, whether you consider him credible or not, to kind of give us a whole bunch of information about Cuban operations, about his uh, connection supposedly to David Phillips, um, the fact that he knew Lee Harvey, also, all of this, and and you kind of go, well, I, I think what happens is that they they, 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 I think men particularly um, in the prime of their lives when they're full of um, vigor and metal and are very you know full of testosterone and very uh, feisty, you know, they, and they they really believe vehemently and fiercely in these things. They carried out things that were very immoral, very unethical in, in the name of, as you say, patriotism, in the name of, or even egotism or narcissism. A lot of these people, I think, were very dysfunctional people who were likely sociopathic, psychopathic, had personality disorders. But they did these things. And I think later on in their lives, when the passions had cooled, when they were trying to come to terms with with their lives, you know, they're, they're, they're going to, they're now facing oblivion or, you know, perhaps they believe in the case of Angleton's confession, very important. Um, you know, one of the most important, I think, confessions is what Angleton said about um, how basically, you know, these people that he had been surrounded with, the likes of Carmel, Carmel Offi, Alan Dulles, Helms, that they were the masters of the world and that, but that they were basically evil. And that as a staunch Catholic, here he was confessing to a journalist um, you know, whilst, you know, coughing up, you know, in coughing fits from his lung cancer. Um, and he said, you know, well, I, I guess I'm going to go and meet them in hell. He, he probably, you know, genuinely believed that he was going to meet his maker and that he would, you know, be, be suffering in, in eternal, you know, punishment for these, these evil deeds that they had committed. But the, at the time, you know, Angleton says this was great fun. It was incredible. And of course, it was the power that they had. You know, talk about the networking, the connections. Yes, they were connected to uh, you know, the most powerful elements and individuals in American society, and they could carry out, you know, at the drop of a hat, all kinds of things, and they did, and they were incredibly successful and effective most of the time. Um, but I think they get to the final stage of their life. David Phillips is another one. He confessed to 
um, one of the investigators and researchers, and he said, you know, my final take on the JFK assassination is that, that there were American intelligence officers involved, you know, and that, that was his his kind of final words on it. You know, supposedly he may have also, according to his nephew, confessed to his brother about being in Dallas on the day. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's a lot of smoke there. Um, is it substantial? Not all of it. A lot of it's hearsay. There's nothing necessarily hard or concrete about some of it. But you start to build up a, a you know, a, a picture of, you know, from all of this, some of it is is very verifiable, um, you know, primary source material that is that is very um, important and is um, reliable. Some of it is is not. Some of it is just hearsay and and disinformation, even as you've pointed out. But but you start to build up this picture, and I, I think yeah, these people they got to the end of their lives. They also I think want credit. <laughs> There's a lot of it. I think that's ego. They've had to keep these secrets. They've pulled off these incredible kind of things, historical world historical events, and they want to get some kind of uh, you know they, they're going to go down in history uh, with, without getting any credit for it. So yeah, I think for all of those reasons, it's fascinating. But but yeah. There's, um, there's, it's certainly remarkable that that so much of this does pour out. I guess, I guess also, you know, no matter how plausibly deniable you you carry out these things, you know, they're going to get declassified at some point. You know, some of it, and and humans are just not very. You know, it comes back to the old adage about, you know, the only way that two people can keep a secret is if if one of if one of them's dead. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, Yusuf, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? I know you got Twitter, um, website, uh, book links, anything like that. And they got one out coming out, so I'll make sure I'll get back well, on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah I put I put my you know project on covert operations just on hold for now. We'll see whether maybe the 60th anniversary rekindles interest. That might be a good time to to push it. But um, yeah, I'm hoping to certainly in in the next you know year or two to bring out a book, uh, as you say on on this uh, period and on, you know, this clique of, of COVID operators such as Dave Phillips. I mean, in terms of my my writing, my journalism, people can find it on the um, independent website. I've written um, several pieces on JFK. And so that's a, a newspaper here in the UK. So the independent website or on my blog on um, Medium. Um, yeah. I'll make sure I link all those in the description. Thanks for listening. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.